Amen, amen. Hey, good morning and welcome to The Grove. We are so glad that you are with us today and uh, want to welcome everybody who's worshiping online as well. Hey, uh, I've had a little extra caffeine this morning, so do me a favor. Uh, look to your left and say you picked a good Sunday to come to church. Yeah, some of y'all followed. Yeah, all right, let's try it again. Look to your right and say you picked a good Sunday to come to church. And then those of you on the ends and those getting coffee right now are like, thank God I wasn't in my seat. That's a little awkward. But it's true. You picked a good Sunday to come to church. I mean, I'm a little biased. I think every Sunday is a good Sunday to come to church. But today's a great Sunday to be in church. We're getting closer to Easter, and we are in the middle of a sermon series called the Sermon on the Mount. Well, the series isn't Sermon on the Mount, but it's about the Sermon on the Mount. And what we've been doing for the last several weeks is, big surprise, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's kind of three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And I think pound for pound, word for word, it's the, the greatest collection of wisdom and information about how to live the best possible life here on earth. The words that Jesus tells us in this sermon, in this kind of series of teachings, I think has the power to clarify and reframe everything that we need to know about how to live here in this life. In addition to that, though, it's also probably uh, the most comprehensive summarization of all of Jesus' teaching and thus probably all of the teaching of all of Scripture. And so if you kind of had to like chop stuff up and, you know, have you have the, ever had those Bibles that are like the Psalms, the Proverbs, and then the New Testament? I don't know why they chose that combination, but if you wanted to reduce it even further, you could literally reduce all of the teaching of Scripture to the Sermon on the Mount. And it would, it would cover, gosh, 98% of everything, maybe? I don't know. You're going to have to research that statistic. But uh, I think it's that comprehensive in what it teaches and how it helps us understand one simple thing. It really helps us understand how we can live here and now as if we're a part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I know that sounds a little vague and kind of abstract, but really the whole intent and purpose of any instruction that God's ever given humanity throughout the course of time, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, Ten Commandments, or Sermon on the Mount, has really been to help us understand how we were created and how we can live as God intended. And so when Jesus comes on the scene at the beginning of the Gospels, this is what he's teaching about. He's here to announce the coming of the kingdom of heaven because it's a present reality that we can start to live into and we can start to participate in. And then after he makes this big announcement that the kingdom of heaven is something we can live into, he kind of gives us kind of the beginner's guide of what it would look like to live in the kingdom of heaven. And then that's the Sermon on the Mount. So the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of setting the foundation for this series. We've been kind of looking at kind of the words that Jesus is using and what he's trying to communicate and what it means. And last week, we looked at something kind of that runs the course of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's this distinction kind of between old righteousness and kingdom righteousness. This was this idea that the way that you live, the way that you're in relationship to God, others, and yourself is really important. It's this idea of righteousness, kind of right living, living in the proper way, the way that God intended. But there was kind of this perversion, this kind of old way of thinking about righteousness that was concerned with following the letter of the law. It was concerned with what was demonstrable. It was concerned with what you could perceive or observe in the behavior and the characteristics of other people. And so it was really focused on, are you following the law to the letter? And Jesus comes along and says, it's important to follow the law to the letter, 
But if you only follow the law to the letter, you are missing so much more about what this instruction, what the law is trying to help you understand. And so he introduced this idea of kingdom righteousness that gets to the spirit of the law or the heart of the law. And so we have this whole section in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus kind of goes through a series of teachings, kind of clarifying or expanding from just the letter of the law into the heart of the law. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you over and over and over again. And what he's doing is trying to help his audience and us today understand what righteousness is really all about. And it's this word that we talked about last week. Dikeosune. Dikeosune is this word in the New Testament that's kind of transliterated in English in a couple of different ways. But it really just means righteousness. And it means kind of the state of our action, behavior, of being, of character. Another word to think about it is virtue purity of life, but it's the way that we live kind of in right relationship to God, to others, and ourself. And so Jesus kind of goes through this whole teaching about what kingdom righteousness looks like, kind of in contrast to kind of the old understanding of righteousness that follows just the letter of the law. And then we get to chapter 6. Now, when this was recorded, when this was kind of transcribed, they didn't write in chapter and verse. We came in and added that later to help us kind of follow along and we could reference different things. This would have just been one long document, kind of like the way that you write when you're like in fourth grade. It's like one giant run-on sentence. There's not a lot of punctuation, the way that some of you still write because we have computers that do all of the grammar for us. Yeah, I use Grammarly like every day with everything that I write because of that. This is what happens when Jesus kind of records these words or his words were recorded is it's kind of this one continuous set of teaching. So there's not this distinction or this kind of hard stop and then you turn the page into chapter 6 and then you start with a new idea. This isn't how he wrote or this isn't how he taught and it's not how they wrote back then. And so what we see at the beginning of chapter 6 should be understood as just a continuation of everything that we've already been talking about, about this distinction between old righteousness and kingdom righteousness and what this looks like in our life. And what we see him do is he begins to introduce the first of two major obstacles that exist for his followers on how to live out this kingdom righteousness. So this is the first one we're going to talk about today. And next week, we'll talk about the second one. But this is what he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, that word piety is the same Greek word that we've just looked at that means righteousness. They just use it in a different way. And so in this way, it's the demonstration of your righteousness, the good things that you do, the way that you act in accordance to the instruction that God's given you. So Jesus kind of gives this caution that kind of frames everything that we're about to talk about. He says, beware of practicing your piety. Beware of the way that you live out your kingdom righteousness. And this is kind of what it all hinges on. In order to be seen by other people. What he's getting at here is the intent behind why you do what you do. He's trying to help us understand that if you do these things, if you live out this kingdom righteousness... Before other people, in order to be seen, in order to kind of gain public and social approval, then you've missed the whole point. And then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, a modern day 
kind of translation of this would be similar to the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. It's supposed to be secretive, not in the sense that nobody can see what you're doing, but the focus is the intent behind what it is that you're doing. If you're doing these things, it'd be kind of modern-day virtue signaling. If you're doing these things so that other people see it and think highly of you or think that, oh, you're a good person, look how righteous, look how holy, look how churchy, look how whatever, fill in the adjective they are. If that's your intent behind what you're doing, Jesus says, then, then you've received what you've desired. You got your reward. You gained social approval. He says, but that's not what the heart of kingdom righteousness is all about. And like we talked about last week, it's all about the heart. Not just kind of as an abstract concept, but our hearts truly reveal who we are. It doesn't matter kind of the facade that we create or the actions that we demonstrate if the heart behind them isn't properly aligned. The heart's really what matters. And so the way that Jesus demonstrates and illustrates this idea about the heart behind our actions and the way that we demonstrate our righteousness, the word he uses, piety, or the, the way that they translate it, piety, is he gives a series of illustrations. He goes through three, at the time, common acts of righteousness, of ways that people would demonstrate righteousness. And he, would go, he went through three categories, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Now, subsequently, we have turned those into kind of like traditional, historical, like Christian disciplines for the season of Lent. And I'm actually kind of teaching a class here at the Grove during the season of Lent right now on these three Lenten disciplines. Because in many ways, they help form us and shape us and allow us to live out our righteousness. Because each one of those things puts us back in proper, right relationship with God, with ourselves, and with others. So kind of these things all build upon each other. But what Jesus does is he walks us through three examples, and I'm going to show you them. But I want you to pay attention to the pattern that exists across all three of these examples. And here's the pattern. It looks like this. So whenever you, bop, 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 fast, give alms, pray, do not do as the hypocrites do. And then he describes the way the hypocrites do it. And then he says, they have received their reward. They've gained what they've desired most. What their heart longs for most, they've received that. Instead, when you, and then he describes the way that you should do it, he says, and then you will receive a reward from your father. Now, this idea of reward from your father, if we kind of go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and this idea of who has access to the kingdom of heaven, and you hear this, blessed are the, blessed are the, we kind of prayed through that in the prayers of the people. It's that same idea. It's not like at some point there's going to be a check in the mail if you do this the way that Jesus is instructing you. I hope that you get checks in the mail, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. There's not like an extra reward where somebody's up there keeping track and like, well, that one wasn't done the right way, so no merit there. You know, it's not scorekeeping in that sense. But it's, this is the way that you can live into the kingdom of heaven. Now, one of the things I want to kind of point out is this word that Jesus uses. And this word is hypocrites. And this is a word that's pretty common in our language today. But at the time, it was used exclusively in a Greek context to describe actors. Actors were hypocrites. They were pretending to be something that they're not. They're acting and demonstrating one thing, when in reality, when they're not on stage, there's something else. 
And Jesus actually lifts this term out of that context and brings it into a religious one. He's the one that kind of combines this idea of being hypocritical or being two-faced or acting like a hypocrite. He uses this language and brings it in to kind of what's recorded in the New Testament. So anywhere else in Scripture that you see this used, it has its origin and source with Jesus because he wants people to understand kind of this image or this metaphor that happens when we don't have the right heart behind our actions. We're pretending. We're deceitful. We're doing it for show, for public appearance and approval. But really, we're something else in truth. In reality, we're something other than what we're appearing to be. And so he kind of calls them hypocrites. And you'll see this again and again and again because it's about their intent. It's about the heart behind what they're doing. He says they do this so that other people will see them do it. But really, their heart's not in the right place. And so they're hypocritical. They're pretending. They're acting their righteousness out. And so let's kind of walk through these different categories. So the first one is related to almsgiving. Now this is, uh, we would think of this as charity of generosity. He says, so in Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be praised by others. Now, the best we can tell, no one actually did this. No one actually walked around like, you know, and kind of, but they would make public spectacle of the way that they were generous. So they would allow loose coins to jangle in their pockets. They would be the last one to come up and bring their offering and make a lot of strong eye contact and place it down there and walk back. It was all for public spectacle and social approval. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, when you are generous, when you give to others, do not do it in this way because that kind of violates the intent and the heart behind your generosity and your charity and your kindness. The hypocrites do this, and I tell you, they have received their reward because what they desire most is public and social approval. The heart behind that action and the way that they're acting it out is so that other people see them and say, wow, look how righteous they are. Look how good they are. Look how generous they are. And Jesus says, they've gotten their reward. The way that that blesses them has already been fulfilled. They've gained social approval. But instead, when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, this is teaching in hyperbole. He's not literally saying close your eyes and put money in your pocket and grab one out and so you don't know how much you've actually grabbed and put it in the offering basket. I mean, you can do that if that's interesting or entertaining to you, but that's not what he's actually instructing. You know, we should all try that later in the service when the offering baskets come around. We should just all reach in and just grab whatever bill. No, that's not what he's instructing us to do. He's saying, listen, there is an intent and a heart behind the way that you should be generous. It shouldn't be done so that anybody else knows what hap- is happening. The goal isn't secrecy. The goal is intent. The goal is the heart. The goal is generosity because that's what you are compelled to do based on your orientation of your heart. You're in proper, right relationship with God and with others. And so you see what's happening and you respond to the need or you want to meet the need based on the desire. It outflows from your heart. And so he uses these word pictures. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But he says that when you act in this way, when your heart's properly aligned, You are like all of those people who have access to the kingdom of heaven. You are blessed. You're rewarded by your Father. This is what it means to live into the kingdom of heaven here on earth. 
is to have the proper heart behind your actions. And he goes on. And when you pray, here's a new category. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Once again, they don't pray in the right manner. They have the wrong intent behind their actions. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. Jesus says, listen, once again, there's a new category in which you can demonstrate your righteousness, not just charity and giving to other people, but in the way that you pray. You, you shouldn't pray so that other people see that you're praying so that they know that you are the type of person who prays. The intent and the heart behind your prayer should be drawing closer to your Father in heaven, not to inform other people about how often you pray. I'm not sure exactly what the modern equivalent would be. Maybe if on social media you like, you know, post a picture of your prayer closet or your Bible and you're like, hashtag prayer life or you know, pray 24-7 or you know, something like that. Probably not what we should be doing. I don't know that how many of us are guilty of standing actually out on the streets praying. But Jesus is trying to help us understand the intent and the heart behind of it. So he gives us new instruction. Whenever you do pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Have the proper heart and intent behind what it is that you're doing. Prayer should be for God and for you. To draw y'all into a deeper relationship together. Not to help other people understand just how much you pray or how righteous or spiritual you are. And then he kind of gives us one other category because there were kind of two versions in which people would kind of pray with um, improper intent. So the first is the way that the Pharisees, the hypocrites do, the religious leaders. And then the other is the way that the Gentiles did. He said, so when you're praying also, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. For, if they, th- for they think they will be heard because of their many words. And so it was less about public display, but more about the ability to kind of manipulate what God was doing based on the volume of words. And so it'd be like that person who's trying to get your attention and they like text you 47 times in a row. They're like, maybe if they keep texting you, you'll respond to them. Or like parents, as your children do, mom, mom, hey, mom, 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 mom. You know, they just keep going. They don't seem to do that to dads, do they? Maybe they've learned. Maybe dads aren't as attentive as moms are, but that's for a different sermon. Mother's Day is in what, like four weeks? Uh, I'll let you have that one. But Jesus is saying, listen, the goal is not try to manipulate God into doing what you want him to do through, through, through prayer. That's kind of what's happening with the intent behind. If I can just say enough words, maybe I'll say the right combination or the magic kind of formula for God to go, oh, he said it, like some incantation that we kind of muster up or stumble upon. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The goal and the focus of prayer is for you and God, not for anybody else or for you to be able to manipulate and control God into granting you your three magic wishes. That's not what it's about. He says, don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then He gives us a model and a guide for how we should pray. Instead of praying in public, and instead of saying a whole bunch of words, go into a closet, shut the door, do it this kind of in the privacy of your own relationship with God, and then pray in this way. Now, like two series ago, we spent five weeks at the beginning of the year on prayer. And so I'm not going to work through the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gives us here. If, you, if you're interested in that, you can go back and watch that series and it'll be lots of what you'd want to know about kind of ways in which we can pray and how prayer can influence and impact your life. But Jesus gives us kind of a script 
and instruction for how to pray. And then he kind of goes to the last category. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces as to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. How are you doing today? I'm okay. I'm hungry. I've been fasting all day. You know, like he says, when you do it in that manner, you get what you want. You've gained approval, social awareness of what you're doing, your virtue signaling. And so you've gained what it is that you want most. The desire of your heart in that moment is for other people to know what it is that you're doing. It's not proper righteousness. It's not alignment with your heart and God's. Jesus says, don't do it like that. He says, so when you do fast, dress up. Put oil on your head and wash your face. Those two feel like they fight each other. That, I don't know if they had like, I mean, Jesus is the smartest and son of God, but I don't know that that, I would like to challenge that one day. Put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen, not by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So you see this pattern. Don't do it so that others know. Don't do it with the intent to get approval from other people. Do it because your heart is in proper alignment with God's. It's about, again, we've been saying this for weeks now, it's about transformation of the heart because our heart reveals who we are. And so I want to kind of show you in practical terms what this can look like, kind of the evolution and the transformation of kind of one intent towards kind of a kingdom-oriented intent. And we're going to do this kind of through the example and illustration of almsgiving or generosity. Now, about a thousand years or so, 1,100 years after Jesus, uh, there was kind of a Jewish teacher and philosopher named Maimonides. And he came up with this idea. I'm not sure if it was based on Jesus, but it sure seems heavily influenced by Jesus on the eight levels of charity. And so what he describes is he starts with the lowest level of charity, kind of the lowest level possible, kind of, kind of least effort, worst intent towards the highest or the greatest, okay? So here is from kind of worst to best, the different levels of generosity and charity. Now, just see the transformation, the shift that begins to happen. Now, think about also, as you hear these, kind of what righteousness means. Righteousness is right relationship, right action, right thinking, right behavior with God, with yourself and with others. And so what you'll see happen through this is the bestowal of dignity upon the recipient of this generosity and the removal of attention from that person who is making this, the, the gift, who is being charitable. And so you see this emphasis shift from the lowest to the highest level. So here's the lowest level of generosity. When somebody gives begrudgingly, when the offering plate comes around later in the service, and you're like, oh, fine. That's, that's kind of the lowest level of generosity. Yes, you're doing it, but the heart is furthest or most disconnected from the act when you give begrudgingly. The next level, which is right above that, is when one gives marginally but does so cheerfully. So if you've got some loose change in your pocket and you're like, oh, fine, that'll do it. Again, because it's, it's focused on the heart. Now, marginally is relative. I don't want you to hear that amount matters. The larger the gift, the more holy, the more righteous, the more spiritual. Marginally is all in perspective to the person. What is the greatest possible gift we could give for one of us might be marginal for another one of us. 
Again, because this isn't focused with the action. It's focused on the intent, the heart behind this. So when someone gives marginally in relationship to them, but cheerfully, they got a smile. The next is when someone gives after being asked. That's kind of the sixth level. We're moving up the ladder. The next one is when one gives without being asked. You can see how that one could be a higher level than the one when you're asked. Keeps going. When the recipient knows the donor, but the donor doesn't know the recipient. So that gives a little bit of attention and recognition to the person who's making the gift, but they're disconnected from the person who's receiving the gift. And so they're committed to the cause without maybe all of the information or details, and that seems to be a higher level than just being asked to give. There's a bit of anonymity there um, between the receiver and the giver. Then the next level higher than that, I'm not quite sure why this one's higher than the other one, but this is what Maimonides says, so this is what I'm sharing. When the donor knows the recipient, but the recipient doesn't know the donor. Maybe because there's less recognition, perhaps. There's less recognition here at this level. You know who you're giving to, the way that you're going to help, but you don't get any credit or attention or acknowledgement of it. You know, I love when you see like charitable organizations and they make the donor list which, you know, maybe they should hear this. But when they do that and then you see all of these, like, anonymous, 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 this is what Maimonides is talking about here. This is a higher level of charity and generosity because you're not doing it to be known. You're not doing it to be seen. It's based on the heart behind the action. He goes on. And then the next level is when neither the donor nor the recipient knows each other. This is probably closest to what Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount, this is kind of the second highest level for Maimonides, is when neither person knows each other. It's like, okay, I'm going to give this. I don't know who's going to receive it, but I hope it helps. And then the people who are receiving it are like, well, we don't know where this came from, but gosh, this sure made an impact in our life. And then the last level, the highest level, is when the donor gives the recipient the ability to become self-supporting, when they move them off-center and the ability to no longer be in need of charity or in need of someone's generosity. It's the highest level of dignity that charitable giving can bestow upon a human. Say, let's move you out of this place so that you're no longer here. And we have so many organizations who are working to do this, to not just kind of feed someone for a day, but to teach them how to fish, to give them the ability to kind of be lifted out of those systems or cycles that keep them oppressed, keep them in need. Amonity says this is the highest level of giving. And you can see the movement, the progression, and the transformation that happens in the heart between giving begrudgingly and giving in such a way that you change the trajectory and the ability of that person to no longer be in need. I mean, the difference in the heart, this is what Jesus is working at. So again, throughout this whole teaching, Jesus is saying one of the big obstacles to the way that you live out this kingdom righteousness is the intent, the heart behind it. It's not only about the things that you avoid, the way that your heart's transformed to not just focus on the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, but it's also about the way that you focus your heart on the way that you live out your righteousness. Do it so that other people aren't drawn towards what you're actually doing because that's what you want. It's fine for people to see what you do. It's fine for people to see the impact of what you've done, But Jesus is saying, but if that's the reason why you're doing it, if you do in order to be seen, he said, you're missing what it means to live into the kingdom of heaven. 
kind of before he goes on this whole description of old righteousness and kingdom righteousness, Jesus paints this word picture. And he starts to describe what it looks like for his followers when they live into the kingdom of heaven. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. And then he gets into says, you are the light of the world. And then he ends that description in Matthew 5, verse 16. And he says it this way. He says, in the same way that a light shines room or shines into a room that gives light into a whole house, and the way that a light has that effect, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do you see the contrast that Jesus is setting up between old righteousness and kingdom righteousness? Old righteousness is done in order to be seen by others for the sake of being seen by others. But what Jesus is saying is let your light shine so that others, they can see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. There's something that happens when we live into this kingdom righteousness. When we focus the heart of what we're doing to align with God's heart, that people's lives are transformed and impacted and they are drawn into relationship with God because of the way that we live our lives. Now, it's not hyperbole, but think about what would happen if just us in this room got this right. Imagine the shift that would take place if, one, we started to live into this kind of kingdom righteousness. We started to desire in our very most inner core of our being, if our hearts were like God, help me live in a way that brings you glory, that brings you honor, that isn't about my fame or credentials or my notoriety. It doesn't, I can be anonymous, Lord, but let my actions, the way that I demonstrate my love for you and for others, let that be seen. And then other people, let other people be drawn to you because of it. That shift could be profound. I mean, the way that we can make a difference in our homes, in our places of work, in our schools, in our friend circles, the way that we can make a difference in this community, in our spheres of influence, if we all started to kind of live out this kingdom righteousness together as followers, Jesus is saying it'd have the same impact that light in a dark room would have. It would illuminate this world. And that's my prayer for us, that we would take seriously Jesus' call, his instruction here to reorient our heart to living out this version of kingdom righteousness, not just limited to the ways that we're charitable, the ways that we pray or the ways that we kind of practice self-denial and fasting, but in every way that we demonstrate what it means to love God and to love others, that we have that heart so that we can have that impact on the world. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are before you today acknowledging that we desire a deeper and fuller and closer relationship with you. God, move and work through us. Let your spirit enliven us, strengthen and encourage us to live out our righteousness before others, not for public approval or to signal how virtuous or holy or righteous we are, God, but to make a difference, to make an impact to change people's lives and to lead them towards you. God, make that shift and transform our hearts in this way. It's our prayer and our request. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.